Well, some of you saw that uh, theme uh, printed in the bulletin, a reluctant servant. So if you're wondering what a reluctant servant looks like, well, looks like me. <laughs> when I was uh, 17 years old, I sat down um, on the bed uh, next to my grandmother Fuller in her old farmhouse in Connecticut and told her about how I uh, had put my faith in Jesus and decided that at 17 I would start following him and see where that led me because I was convinced um, that he was indeed real and he is God and that he is meant to be followed and that he could not only uh, save me but um, change my life because uh, I would no longer be my own but I would now be his. And my grandmother looked at me and smiled and she recited these words. I think they're some of the most beautiful words in the English language, and John wrote them, the disciple John. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Though through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. Sorry, I have bad eyesight, so I have to get closer. <laughs> um, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And so I was convinced that indeed he had made all things and come into the world uh, to deliver me from sin and ultimately from death, and that he said, come follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men, along with other promises that he made. And so I ventured out with that um, little modicum of faith that I had that he was indeed there, so I basically said to him, well, here I am, Lord, and where are you? And started looking. So I started reading my scriptures and kind of discovering him through the Bible, what he was like, the kinds of things he said and did. Started talking to him in prayer. And uh, one of the things that happened that is one of my favorite personal God stories, which I did share a few years back when I gave my testimony here, um, was this beautiful gift he gave me. And what happened was I was at that time about 19 and working in a little restaurant in Lawrence and going to school, commuting to University of Lowell. And uh, I was about to leave the restaurant and it was a small little, little restaurant with a small number of employees. And so some of them were going to take me out to dinner. And I felt very convicted as I was getting ready to leave and go out to this dinner that I had not shared my faith with any of these uh, people in the restaurant, the workers. And so I had never really, I shared my faith with my family, kind of chased them around and told them they all needed Jesus or they were all going to be going to hell, which was not a popular point of view. <laughs> Didn't go over well. I don't recommend that approach. Um, so that had kind of, I had kind of clammed up uh, on my following Jesus, unless I was with other Christians. But I felt very convicted that here are these people who didn't know about Jesus. I was pretty sure of that. And uh, I hadn't told them what I knew about him. And so I was very convicted that I should share my faith in Jesus before I left that restaurant. So, um, but I told Jesus, so I talked to him about it and said, uh, you know, okay, I think you want me to do this, but I am a coward and I've never really done that before and uh, I will do it, but on one condition, you'll have to give me an opportunity. So you're gonna have to bring the topic up in some way with these people. I won't be able to just raise the, the topic myself. So. You give me an opportunity and I promise I'll say something to them. So we went out to dinner at a restaurant and uh, we carpooled together in this guy's car. There's just a handful of us, but all the way over, nothing remotely to do with Jesus. And I kept talking to him, Lord, I'm willing, but you're gonna have to bring it up. I can't bring it up myself. So I was watching for the opportunity, but there wasn't one. 
So all through dinner, the same thing, nothing remotely related to Jesus. And so I kept telling him, I, I am willing, Lord, I am willing, but you're going to have to help me here. So it wasn't until the ride home when the driver of the car, whose name was Bill, uh, we started somehow, somebody brought up dreams, and people in the car started talking about the dreams they had. And Bill piped up with, well, he had a lot of dreams about Jesus. So as soon as I heard that, I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> I couldn't ask for a more obvious introduction to the subject. So I started asking about what he dreamed about Jesus, and then we started talking, and I started sharing about how I had ventured out and started following Jesus. And, uh, and pretty soon, everybody had been dropped off but me. I was the last one with Bill. And by that time, we had, I had shared my newfound faith in Jesus and how I was reaching out to him, and I had put my trust in him and was following him. And um, so we pulled up in front of a house right here in Andover, uh, where I was living with my family. And um, I, he was very receptive and, uh, to the whole notion of following Jesus. And so somehow I found the courage to say, well, would you like to follow him yourself? You can just ask him to come in your life. That's what I did. And he'll show up. And you'll, you can you know, follow him and begin to know him and know how much you're loved by him. He said, yeah, I'd like to do that. So I, I was surprised by that. I was like, okay. So I said, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll pray, because I didn't think he was going to pray, and I'll, I'll say a prayer for you, and you can just kind of quietly say that in your heart if you'd like. So he's like, well, he said, okay. So I just prayed a little short prayer about, you know, Jesus coming in his life. And the next thing I know, Bill has his hands up in the air, and he's crying and praising God in the front seat of the car next to me. So I didn't know what to do about that, because I didn't expect that. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I, he just, he, he, obviously the Holy Spirit touched him, and he, he was in. He understood. Or I thought at least he, he understood. I was hoping he did, but I didn't quite understand what was happening. <laughs> so I didn't know what to do with Bill. We're in front of my parents' house. <laughs> so I had a little New Testament in my pocketbook, so I reached in, grabbed that with some Kleenex, gave it to Bill, and said, here, read this. And then I, I hi-hoed into the house and uh, left him there in the car, and I guess he pulled himself together and drove off, and I never saw Bill again. So when I got into the kitchen of my mother's house, I was just overwhelmed with astonishment that all of this had happened, that I had ventured out just thinking I would share something about my newfound faith in Jesus, but I had no idea that uh, I was in the midst of the harvest and that Bill was ripe for the picking, and that God had ordained that time. And the reason he prompted me, obviously, to say something is because he wanted me to participate in that. So when I got in the, the kitchen, I, I dropped to my knees, and I started praising God, and I realized, well, thank you, God. You gave me way more than I imagined here. So thank you. But no sooner had I said that, as I'm on my knees in the kitchen, uh, all of a sudden I was just overwhelmed with doubt, doubt and fear. And I doubted myself, I doubted God, and I just started thinking, well, wait a minute, I don't know if I really explained it well to Bill. I don't know if I said what I should have said. Maybe I should have explained it differently. I don't know if he really got it. I don't know if that was really real what happened. Just doubt and fear and uncertainty came upon me. And that was one of the first times I heard God speak in that still small voice in my heart. And if you've had that experience, you know, Jesus tells us that he's the good shepherd and his sheep will hear his voice and recognize his voice. And that's a process that I found happens over time when you follow Jesus. You'll begin to recognize his voice. And one of the ways you'll know it is because it won't go against what scripture tells us. He's not going to tell you to do something to harm yourself or someone else. It, it's going to be, he's going to be speaking to you a truth that will come right out of what you know is in the Bible. And uh, what I heard him say very clearly was, 
Your job is to bring, him, bring them to my throne and I'll ca cause the growth. Very simple. But it overwhelmed me with peace when I heard that in my heart because I was like, okay, I did what you wanted me to do. I brought him to your throne, but you're gonna cause the growth. So I guess it's, it's in your court, God, and, and I felt peaceful. And so that was it. That was the end of that experience. Except a year later, I was uh, volunteering in a, where I'd also become a Christian and found out about Jesus and met the first serious followers I'd ever met at that place. I was volunteering at this Christian coffee house turning point right over behind the library. And uh, I had told Bill about this Christian coffee house and the conversation in that car, but he had never showed up there. And uh, about a year later, I'm behind the coffee bar and this young man comes in that I had never seen before. And he starts asking for me by name. Does anybody know Susan Fuller, which is my maiden name? And so they pointed him to me. So he came over to me and he said, are you Susan? And I said, yes. And he said, well, he said, I came to find you. He said, because I've just became a Christian. And he said, I became a Christian because Bill, this guy in the car, had told him about Jesus. So he said, I was so glad to hear about Jesus from Bill. I asked Bill, how'd you find out about Jesus? And he said, this woman, girl Susan told me. And he told me where to find you, that you might be at this coffee house. So he said, I came to find you to thank you for telling Bill who told me. And then he threw his arms around me, and I never saw him again either. He left. <laughs> <laughs> but that is my favorite, one of my favorites. But it's, it's the best God story I have because it was the whole package wrapped up with a big bow and a name tag on it. Dear Susan, love God. Because he didn't have to show me. You know, he told me when I was on the kitchen floor, I caused the growth. That's my job. And that's right out of scripture. And, uh, and I thought, okay, he knows what he's talking about, but the lovely thing is he didn't have to prove it, but he did. You know, that's a God thing to send this young man in just to let me know that Bill was staying uh, close to God and was telling others. Bill was also working the harvest now. So that was an experience that I will always remember and always cherish because that was kind of God. He didn't have to prove himself. He didn't have to show me that he does cause the growth in our spiritual life, but he showed me because he's loving and kind, and he knew that that would be significant, and it was. So uh, when that happened and other things began to happen as I prayed and talked to him more and more, and I began to see him uh, moving in my life and nudging me closer to him, reaching out in love to my family and my father in particular, um, I understood the concept of being a servant. I realized, you know, it's all through the Bible. I knew about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, which was a really dirty job, and nobody did that unless you were really low on the totem pole. But he did it with all those stinky feet and those disciples. And they tried to stop him from doing it because they knew that he shouldn't be the one doing that for them. But he said, no, I, I want to wash you. Not only am I going to wash your feet, but I'm going to make you clean on the inside too as well. So I understood that idea of servanthood, but I wasn't really eager to be a servant. Um, part of my growing up was I sort of had issues with men because my dad had an alcohol problem, and so he was kind of erratic. And um, so I didn't like authority figures, and it made me sort of anxious if um, somebody was sort of in control of my circumstances or my life. I really didn't like to follow authority. I wasn't a rebellious person, um, but... I just was sort of anxious about that. Didn't really like to be told what to do because I wasn't sure that was going to work out well. And when it came to serving, I, I knew I was supposed to be serving in some way as a Christian, that that's the whole, we're supposed to be like he is, like Jesus is. 
Um, so I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll serve where I can. And one opportunity that I saw was to go out in the mission field for a summer uh, with Teen Missions, which is a group in Florida, and work in the uh, Amazon jungle for a summer, uh, working on an airstrip for a missionary couple that was there so they could get in and out of the rainforest uh, without going by boat, which took a long time. So it was a summer uh, journey. You spent the summer there, but first you had to spend two weeks in Florida getting trained on how to uh, cut logs and wood and dig. And the, the slogan of Teen Missions is, um, get dirty for God, go lay a brick. So I thought, okay, I can get dirty for God. Although I wasn't quite sure what that was going to entail, but it turned out to be five days down the river and a little open boat uh, going into the Amazon jungle and a little tribe of Indians, about maybe 60, 70 people that were hunter-gatherers. They didn't have any village or town or anything. They had a few huts that were just total open platforms with open walls and a thatched roof, and they would just travel around and, and hunt and gather food, and they didn't grow anything. They didn't have a you know, company store. They didn't have anything except some canoes and, and a missionary family that was there in the midst of them translating the Bible into their language. So we were there to help the missionary family extend this airstrip so they could get a little two-seater airplane in and out of there rather than having to go five days down the river um, by boat to get to any kind of civilization. So when I got there, um, after five days on a boat, um, drinking water out of the river, there were 30 of us, teenage, all teenagers, uh, ranging from 14, and I was one of the older ones at 20. So um, they were from uh, primarily uh, the US and Canada, and so when we arrived uh, at the uh, missionary's little hut in, in the jungle, they, uh, well, by that time, we all had developed dysentery. I won't go into the details, but <laughs> if you've been to some countries where you can't drink the water, you know how bad that can be. So the missionary had a little, uh, it was actually lovely, a lovely little outhouse that he and had dug that uh, had just a pit, but it had a box over it with a seat, toilet seat nailed on it, and it had a thatched roof over it and it had little thatch walls, and so it was kind of, you know, it was airy and comfortable and private, and it was lovely, but it wasn't lovely after 30 of us uh, started using it nonstop. <laughs> and I remember we, you'd get in line, use it, and because there was 30 of us lined up for it, and you could have gone in the jungle, but nobody really wanted to do that. And uh, so you'd get in, you'd use it, and then you just go to the end of the line, because you knew by the time uh, your turn came up again, you'd be ready. <laughs> So the poor missionary and his wife and their kids were kind of like, yeesh, you know, they had dug their, their pit for their toilet, uh, you know, expecting that would last like a year or something, and we were, we were going to fill that up pretty quick. So they said, you're going to have to dig your own trenches. So we said, okay. So the girls split off. We were going to dig ours. The boys split off to dig theirs. So that's the first time, too, at 20, I realized the fundamental differences between men and women. Uh, so because after we, we did our latrine uh, duty and dug and designed our own personal outhouses, we went to look at theirs before they used it, and they came to check ours out, and we were both astonished. So um, men and women think very differently about privacy needs. And so for the girls, we picked a spot where uh, it was in the midst of kind of a bunch of brush, so it had that kind of privacy screen. We had a long path that went into it. We even created a sign that said vacant or occupied that you could flip on the bush to let people know you were in there so there were no surprises. And we just dug, it was just, we planned, it was a one-seater, so it was just, you're only going to be in there one at a time, so we dug a big pit, and we, you know, put some logs across it that you could kind of prop yourself on, and made a nice little toilet paper holder. We were all about the details, <laughs> out of some wood, 
And I remember we went to look at the guys' uh, um, latrine, and they had just dug a huge trench and put two poles parallel to it so they could have five guys lined up back to back. <laughs> and I don't think they even found a spot for their toilet paper. And we were in shock that they would all be in there at the same time, and they were in shock that we would wait for one person to go and have this whole path you had to meander down and, and a sign about whether it was occupied or not. So, but what happened when we had to dig that, that trench? That was hard digging because the ground was baked. It was the dry season, so it was hard clay. So we had to dig, and we were all digging away together, working as a team. And then uh, everybody else, that was just the girls digging, it was probably about 15 of us, everyone decided they were hot and it would be a good idea to go for a swim. So they decided to stop digging and go down and swim. Now, I didn't want to go dig, swim, come back and dig again. I thought that would just make me dirty again, and I'd rather just get the digging done and then go in the river. So I decided to stay behind and just keep digging my share. So that's kind of how I thought about it. I thought, well, I've got a share. They've got a share. So I'll dig my share here while everybody's in the water, and then when I think I've dug my 15th of this latrine, I'll, I'll go down to the water and I'll, I'll be done and they can finish on their own. So that's what I did. So I went down to the water after I dug what I considered to be my fair share and I was swimming in the water and then our missionary leader said, uh, well, it's time for you girls to go back and finish your latrine. So they all went scampering up the hill, but I stayed in the water because I'd already done my share. I, I dug my share of the latrine. So he came and spoke to me and said, well, well, why aren't you back digging? And I said, well, I already dug my share. They, they came and swam early. I didn't. I stayed and dug longer. And so I think it's fair that I stay here and just swim now. I already did my share. That was, I was stuck on that, if you didn't notice. My share. <laughs> I'd done my share. And so he explained to me very nicely that, you know, Susan, that's not really how a team works, that we all work together till the job is done. So your choice was your choice about when you were going to swim, but you've got to go back and complete the job with the rest of the team. Basically, he was saying, there is no my share. We're all in this together. So that was a wake-up call because I knew he was right and that you can't parcel out how much you're going to serve and decide when uh, and how much you're going to do, and particularly when you're comparing yourself to everyone else and thinking, well, what are they doing and what am I doing? And am I doing more than them? Am I doing more than my fair share? Are they doing their fair share? I'm sure you've all had those thoughts if you had to work together at all in any um, kind of circumstance. And so that was a lesson I learned, that uh, it's not about uh, cutting up your share of the duties and only doing that and, and, you know, no more. And the other lesson I learned when I was in Brazil is that, that love is action. So there was a young guy in the team who we had to spend two weeks in Florida getting training in a boot camp so we could go and be out in the jungle on our own with tools and cut things down. And uh, he was a very, we all thought he was a spiritual giant because he knew his scripture, he would sing it. We all had quiet time in the morning individually and you'd hear him singing out the scripture. And, uh, and we just thought, wow, he's a spiritual giant because he knows the scripture. But it turns out when we got to uh, Brazil that he was, he was a guy who talked, but there was no action behind his words. There was no love behind his words. So he was not helpful, he was not kind. He uh, was very grumpy very annoying. He became a burden we had to carry rather than uh, an addition to the team. And all his scripture wasn't useful at all because he didn't know how to apply it and he didn't understand that the law of love is what undergirds everything. And so those were lessons that, uh, that I learned there and took home with me. But I still um, I have a hard time with change. There's a scripture that says don't kick against the goad. 
Now a goad is a stick that uh, farmers or anybody dealing with animals would use to poke an animal in his rear end just to get him moving. Now if you get poked in your, in your animal in the rear end, you either will move forward or the more automatic reaction is they just stand still and they kick back. And the more you poke them, the more they'll just stand there and kick back. And I am much like that. I uh, feel poked by God or whatever, and uh, I tend to stand still and just kick back. And uh, that is a stubbornness that God's had to sort of move me out of over the years. So when I've been with him for over 40 plus years, and it's taken all that time, and it's gonna take more to change my sort of attitude that way, where rather than kicking back, I'm willing to move forward where he's leading. And so uh, in terms of serving, um, I began to incorporate these lessons into my life, but it still didn't make it necessarily easy. And uh, one of the things that um, was constantly a problem, I, I started cooking Thanksgiving dinner once I was a newlywed. And uh, uh, I would be serving uh, turkey and stuffing and a little wrath on the side because uh, I would look around and think, who's helping, who's not? Who, who contributed to this? Who's expecting me to do it all? And I always had a, oh, woe is me kind of attitude. That's why it, it was the beginning of the, my journey in servanthood was, why me? And that's pretty much how I usually would feel. Why me? Why aren't they doing it? And so uh, the example of Jesus is that he, you know, we sang about it this morning, that he let go the equality with God that he had, and he came and became one of us and became a servant, even to uh, being obedient, going to the cross for us. So that's the example we had and have, and so that's the example that I, I realized I really needed to follow. So it really uh, became, uh, serving really became the most difficult when uh, my father, uh, after I'd been married about, um, I don't know, 15 years or so, got sick with meningitis, and then he went into a coma, and then he came out of the coma, and uh, dad lived for another 15 years after that, but dad was as compromised as you can be. He was paralyzed except he could move his left hand a little bit. Um, he lost all of his speech, so he understood. He wasn't vegetative, but he couldn't talk except for a few words. He could still sing. That was a different part of the brain than the one that um, was destroyed by his stroke. And uh, he couldn't move, so he was paralyzed in bed on a trach tube with a feeding tube for 15 years. And my mom brought him home from the hospital and set him up in the dining room at her house right here in Andover and started caring for him. And when she first told us that she was taking him home, uh, my reaction was, oh my goodness, that's gonna be pretty bad. And um, she did it out of love for him. And my father had not, I don't think, had earned that. I don't think he would have said he earned it, but my mother was an example of love because she understood the principles of love, that it is kind, it's patient, it doesn't keep track, track of the wrong, but rejoices in the right. And one of the things that used to happen when uh, dad would have to be in and out of the hospital in Boston all the time because of different things that would happen, when they'd find out the situation and how my mother was caring for him in her dining room, and um, my, my father was meticulously cared for. He never had a bed sore under my mother's watch in 15 years. And they would uh, find out about this, and my brother John and I were, were the um, ones who lived in the area, so we were the ones helping out, and we'd be there too, and they would say, gee, he must be a remarkable person uh, to have deserved this. And John and I would just look at each other. Uh, we wouldn't say anything, but the reality was Dad didn't deserve that. But Mom did it out of love for him, and that's what love is like. It gives 
what it wants to give because it wants to give it, not because the recipient deserves it in some fashion. And she showed me a lot about what it means to, um, to follow Jesus and, and be the same way because that's how Jesus is with us. He's giving because he's choosing to give, even to death on the cross for us, not because we deserve it or earn it, but because of his love for us. That's the choice he made. He wants to give that and do that for us. So uh, the big change for me was um, I showed up faithfully to help out over those 15 years. I learned how to suction my father with a trach tube. I learned how to do the feeding tube. I uh, changed his diapers. I would take care of him when she couldn't be there. Um, some of the nice memories with dad would be um, if she had to go somewhere, I would stay with him and he'd be in his hospital bed and I'd open up the shades and let the light in and put on Andrea Bocelli really loud and we'd listen to that and just smile at each other. But um, I wasn't always willing to go. And one of the, the uh, scriptures that really helped me was one that Matthew uh, writes about, where Jesus tells a story about two sons. And he said, there are two sons. And he said, um, the father comes to them and says to each of the sons, will you come work with me in, in my vineyard? And uh, the first son says, yeah, I'll do it. Um, but he doesn't show up the next day. And the second son says, no, I don't want to do that. But the next day, there he is, he's shown up. And Jesus asked, well, who has done the will of the Father? And the people listening said, well, obviously the one who actually showed up. And that really helped me when I read that because I realized, well, God is patient with people who uh, have the wrong attitude or don't want to show up. He's, he's willing to uh, wait till you change your mind and turn around and start showing up. And that it's really not how you start, but it's how you finish. So maybe you're a reluctant servant, maybe you're a reluctant follower of Jesus, but it's the fact that you show up and you repent and turn around and, and come you know, into his kingdom, come into his vineyard, come into the harvest because he's called you to, even if they, initially you didn't want to do it. And that really helped me a lot because I was very reluctant, often had a bad attitude about showing up. I didn't show that to my mom, but I would often think that on the way over there to care for them, that I don't want to be here. Um, and I know if any of you are doing caretaking for elder parents, you know what that's like, or anyone that you're caring for. Sometimes you just don't want to show up. But God honors the fact that we show up, and he's pleased with that. So the last thing is um, it takes time to change. You can, it, Moses was uh, you know, out after he had to flee Egypt. He was out in the desert taking care of sheep for over 40 years before he got sent back to Egypt and led the uh, Israelites into the promised land. And uh, Joseph you know, sat in a prison. Joseph, with a, so the story of the coat of many colors, sat in a prison cell uh, through no fault of his own for many years before God brought him out of that and used him to uh, save the Israelites from famine and brought them into Egypt. So you can sit for a long time uh, in a spot where it seems like nothing's really happening, but slowly God is changing you from the inside and preparing you for what he has, you, uh, has planned for you to do, whatever kind of service that might be. So it's important to wait and trust that even if you feel like you're on the sidelines, that God is moving on your behalf and that he has plans for you that might uh, not be what you think you want, but if you say yes and show up where he's called you, you can be surprised at what he has intended for you and what he's going to make happen. And I, I just find a great comfort in knowing that God uh, understands the grumblers, 
He understands the stubborn ones. He understands people with wrong attitudes who um, are willing eventually to be turned around. And also, um, the last thing I wanted to say is just um, one of the verses that's really struck me that I've brought up before in some of my talks um, that I've read many times over the years, but it really is resonating with me, is Hebrews 11, where it talks about that, um, that faith is knowing that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so that's the starting point, is deciding that, okay, I think that he exists, I'm gonna go looking for him, because I think he's going to reach out to me if I reach out to him, and he does. And sometimes we can have doubts about the existence of God, and we wonder, are you really there? And what are you really like? And often that's not talked about in church, but I love uh, the uh, scriptures about the doubters. I've always related to the doubters. So, you know, we've got Doubting Thomas, the disciple who, when Jesus was resurrected and showed up in the upper room, he wasn't with them. And so when they told him, well, Jesus is alive and well, we saw him uh, resurrected from the dead, and he talked to us and was with us, and Thomas said, well, unless I can touch the, uh, his side where the sphere went in and see the nail holes in his hands, I'm not going to believe that. I have to see it for myself. And so a little bit later, uh, they're all together, and this time Thomas is with them, and Jesus shows up again in that upper room. And he goes right up to Thomas, and he said, you know, here, touch my side, feel my hands, see my scars, and uh, know that um, I am alive. And don't doubt anymore, start believing. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and he starts believing. And there are other examples when Jesus was ministering and healing. You know, some people had great faith that Jesus could heal them and would come up to him. And uh, there was a centurion, you know, who said, you don't even have to come to my house to heal my son. You, all you have to do is say the word, and it will happen. And Jesus said he had not seen such great faith in Israel. And there was a woman who uh, had great faith and asked him uh, to heal her family member. And uh, he said, well, you know, I'm kind of just working with the Jews right now in so many words. And she said, well, even the dogs uh, can take advantage of the crumbs that drop down underneath the table. And he said, well, okay. He liked her faith as well and commended her for that and healed her child. But there were other people who had doubts. There was a man who had a, a child that was uh, demon-possessed, and he came to Jesus and asked him to heal his son, and Jesus said, well, do you think I can do it? And uh, the man said, well, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus healed his son. And that is a prayer I have said many times to God, I do believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. And the fact that I'm standing here some 40 years later after following Jesus is because he has helped my unbelief and he'll help your unbelief. But the important thing is to ask him and seek him because he's the only one who can convince you that he's real and make his presence known just like he did with that time with Bill. And then um, the other thing is, is that when we wrestle with God, when you're going through some kind of struggle where you're angry with him or you're tired of waiting, he hasn't delivered on his promise uh, that you um, were expecting, and it's taking too long, and you feel like he's either not listening or he doesn't care. Maybe you should take matters in your own hands, like uh, Sarah did, uh, wanting a son. You know, don't do that. Wait for God to deliver what he's promised. Trust in him, and where your faith is weak, ask him to come and make it strong. Ask him to uh, show you. You know, when John the Baptist was in prison before he was beheaded by Herod, he had a time of doubt because he sent his followers to Jesus and said, uh, go ask him, are you the one or is there supposed to be somebody else that's the Messiah? And Jesus didn't rebuke him through his followers. 
and send back a message. What are you talking about, John? You saw the dove and the Holy Spirit descend on me. You know I'm the one. Why are you asking that now? Jesus received him his, his question with kindness and gentleness and told John's disciples to go back and tell him that the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, the dead are being raised, and that, yes, I am he. So Jesus understands that um, we need help with our faith. He needs to grow it. We can uh, keep seeking him. That's our obligation is to stay close. When we feel like we're wrestling with God for some reason, then hang on to him tighter. Don't run away. Don't leave him. But like Jacob, when he was wrestling with God, tell him, you know, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. And I have had to pray that prayer many times. Lord, I feel lost. I feel uncertain about you. Uh, my faith is small. Please, I don't want to let go of you. I'm going to hang on to you till you bless me. And God has come through in so many different ways in my life and shown himself to be there. So I would just encourage you to stay close to him. He will transform you and turn you into a servant, whether you want it or not, because he is a servant, and that you can trust him to be the author and finisher of your faith, and that he's going to cause the growth. And our job is to be obedient uh, when he calls us, even if we have the wrong attitude, but just say yes and let him change our hearts and to just cling, cling to him closely, especially when you feel afraid or far away from him.